Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, I thought I would kick off this episode with a little trip down memory lane. We're headed to the heartland. It's the late 70s, early 80s, and we're going to my favorite museum in the whole world. It's on the south side of Chicago, and it's called the Museum of Science and Industry. Are you ready? I'm ready. So at the Museum of Science and Industry, there were many attractions, but young Jenny Berkshire had three favorites. Top favorite was probably the mine where you got to go in an elevator down into a mine shaft. And then while you were down in the basement area, it happened that there was sort of like a 19th century style ice cream parlor. Young Jenny really liked that. But one of her favorite attractions was the, it was kind of a whole exhibit where you would sit in a special chair, kind of a mid-century chair, and you would go around on a conveyor belt and it would just show you the wonders of petroleum. And, <laughs> and young Jenny just loved that. Plastics, they were the future. So our topic today is climate change and schools. It's obviously a huge topic. It's one that we have had gotten several requests um, over the last couple of years to do an episode on. And, you know, we've gone back and forth about whether it made sense to really focus in on some specific angle. But at the end of the day, I decided, you know what, let's just let's just tackle it, Jack. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, go big or go home. Uh, I, I have a, a strong interest in this, as I think most of humanity does, whether they recognize that or not. Um, and, and I'm excited that we're talking about it. I think that when I think about climate change and education, I really am of two minds. On the one hand, my immediate reaction every time anybody wants to teach anything new in the schools is like, please don't. Like, please Please stop. It is full. We cannot do any more inside the schools. But then on the other hand, you know, it's like what, what is more fundamental at this point than teaching about this existential threat? You know, one of the, the exercises that I often put myself through if I'm thinking about whether something is worth teaching or not is like let's take a trip into the future and look back on our decision to teach or not teach this particular subject. And it does seem like, oh, wow, like – 50 years from now, if we're looking back and, and looking back upon a decision to just ignore climate change in our schools, that seems like a bad move. I think it's really important for us to consider not just as a curricular issue, because I think when we're talking about should something be taught, we're often thinking about the curriculum, but as an issue that affects the entire operation of schools. And, and I'll just say, I, I gave a talk at Michigan State a couple years ago, which was the weirdest talk I've ever given because they gave me total free reign. And I used climate change as the premise for talking about, it was a, a music education conference, and I used climate change as a premise uh, for that because I think if we are really serious about climate change and we're really staring down 
the reality that life as we know it is going to be totally upended sometime in the not incredibly distant future, it does raise these incredibly fundamental questions about what the purpose of school is, right? It's like, it's time to begin questioning some things. I think that the reality of climate change, which we really can't run from at this point, means that things like music education really matter. Like, like there are things that matter to humanity no matter what life in the future is going to look like and that if we're narrowly thinking about quote unquote 21st century jobs and ignoring these basic things about like what it means to be a human being on the planet i think we do so at our peril but i've i've derailed i've i've gone too big here Let's let's bring it back in a little bit. Well, Jack, I think you're going to be really pleased with the content of this episode that you are kind of like, I didn't fill you in a lot on what our guests uh, wanted to talk about, but I, I think you'll, I think you'll be happy. And my second thought is that your little mental exercise sounds a lot to me like you're going to, into the future and then climbing into a time machine. Mm-hmm. Well, Jennifer, you take a time machine to the future. You've been narrowly thinking about time machines as one-way devices. They go both ways. Well, I'm pretty sure that there was a ride based on that concept at the Museum of Museum Science, of and, Science Industry. and Industry. Now to the main event. Our first guest is someone we've had on the show before. His name is Oren Pismoni-Levy. He's an associate professor of international and comparative education at Teachers College at Columbia University. And it was actually Oren's last appearance on Have You Heard that set this episode in motion. We were talking about international tests like PISA and how they link test scores to economic productivity. And what Oren pointed out was that this definition of economic productivity is based completely unsustainable. And so even if you buy the idea that a standardized test can predict a country's economic fortunes, well, the ultimate cost may be that we're all, say, underwater or on fire. You get the point. Since we did that episode, Oren has made climate change and education his central focus. He's the director of the Center for Sustainable Futures at Teachers College, and he says there's a growing awareness among students that we can't just continue to conduct business as usual. At the college over the past year, we've seen a growing movement among the students calling for the administration and the faculty to really up their game around climate action. It's not a surprise. We see it in many other colleges and universities across the nation and worldwide. But I was very happy to see it at Teachers College specifically. The students collected petition and signatures from the community. After collecting 700 of those, they met with the president and the leadership team. And they gave a presentation about climate change and how they envisioned the role of schools of education in this effort to mitigate and uh, address climate change. But while students at Teachers College are demanding action, not everyone is convinced. And one of the questions they were asked is about when are we expecting the impact of climate change? And it was really surprising to see how even people at universities and colleges sometimes are not aware of how the impact of climate change is already happening. 
It's not something that we need to look at the future, at the far future. It's not something that we need to look abroad. We, we can just look at communities and localities within the U.S. Teachers College, of course, is part of Columbia University, which is in New York City, where the subway system now fills up with water every time there's a big storm. In other words, if you're running a school of education in New York City, the impact of climate change is here. And for Oren, that raises a big question. What should schools of education like his be doing in response? I would argue that we should do much more than what we are doing right now. I would love to see everybody in the sector really thinking carefully about how their analysis or research or practice is depending or or making assumptions about the climate. It seems like for education scholars, they are all assuming that the planet is going to be there and to function in its best capacity to support human life or human systems. But climate change is actually putting a big question mark about this stability. And we are entering time in life where much more uncertainty is going to be the normal than stability. And scholars need to take that into account. And they need to take that into account as soon as possible. One of those big assumptions is that the key to economic growth and international competitiveness is boosting student achievement. That idea is the water we swim in, to use one of my co-hosts' favorite metaphors. But Oren says that view is increasingly problematic. The whole pursuit of development and improving education in the sake of development is problematic. Because at some point we need to realize that development has limits. And development has consequences to uh, natural resources. If we take, for example, the case of discourses around improving achievement, most of the time we talk about improving achievement in the context of contribution to the economy. But the economy cannot be the main reason for why we do education or why we seek to improve education. Because current economic infrastructure are based on using resources from the planet in an unsustainable fashion. So we really need to think about, A, what kind of development we want to see, and B, what is the role of education in promoting the development that we do want to see. So what about the state of climate change education? Oren says that while there's been a lot of talk, it hasn't translated into much action at the school level. While there are pockets of progress in places like New Jersey and New York City, they remain just that pockets. Meanwhile, there are big unresolved debates over how schools should teach about climate change. Let's start with the role of teachers who, if you haven't noticed, are dealing with kind of a lot right now. There is a lot of confusion among teachers around what to teach. Some of them are worried, really worried about parents' pushback. And so they are doing an interesting dance of bringing what the science is saying and what the debate about science is. Mainly, whether climate change is caused by human activity or is it a natural phenomenon. We know that 97, 99% of scientists agree that climate change is a product of human activities. There is no debate here. Teachers, however, don't know how to navigate the politicization of this topic. So they bring both perspectives to the class, which creates even more confusion among the students. 
Another big unresolved question is where climate change fits into the curriculum. Is it a STEM topic? If it is, what about kids who aren't that into science? Oren says that schools need to think bigger. In order for us to really develop a new generation of young citizens that are fully engaged with climate, we also need to address this in social studies, in history, in math, in language arts, in physical education, really throughout the curriculum, this should come. So people will have different ways of entering the discussion around climate. Not every kid is uh, into the sciences, and it's fine. But some kids are really into the arts. So an arts-based class on climate could be a good way to enter the discussion. Or you can't teach about the Industrial Revolution without thinking about the implication of that revolution to our current climate crisis. Sometimes we are overdoing the science in this area, and we forget that there are other ways to engage students. And also, when you do it only from the science, you frame it as a scientific technological issue. And when you talk about it from history, you make it really a social issue. And I think this is really important for kids. Finally, there is the question of how schools should respond to climate change as essential institutions. Oren says that schools have a role to play that goes well beyond just teaching about climate change. So it's starting with schools really thinking through about how they manage the facility, the facilities of the school in times of climate change, installing solar panels. So the school can contribute to this area through reducing the ecological footprint or changing the design of the surrounding of the schools so we have facilities that can help uh, absorb water that come in severe weather. Think about a, a large storm and whether the parking lot around the school will just contribute to the flooding of the school or whether it will be more active in absorbing water from this severe weather. This is the, the kind of the questions we need to think about. What's the role of schools in mitigating climate change? and also serving as a resilient center for the community after a disaster. We learned a lot over the past two years from the pandemic on what happens to communities when schools are closing. There is immediate effect on the students, but there is also effect on the parents and the families and the broader community. So it's time to think about what's the role of schools in this area, not only in just teaching about or engaging the student with climate change, but also rethinking the whole structure in preparation for this uncertain future. Okay, so Jack, I want to bring you back in because this is obviously not the first time that some science-related topic has been really politicized. And as I was listening to our distinguished guest talk, I was thinking back to Tennessee, of course, and the, the Scopes trial and the ferocious battles over evolution that even though they died down, always seem to be with us. Fill us in. Yeah, I was also thinking about evolution and recalling a conversation that I had with friend of the show, Adam Latz, who was saying that, you know, even though evolution bubbles up every once in a while as a sort of micro controversy, that it really is settled, right? That there's an example of a controversial issue, and that's the context in which we talked about it previously on the show, um, you know, a subject around which there was disagreement in the curriculum, 
really over time became settled, became a, a settled part of the curriculum around which there is very little controversy. And I think that that is, if we're looking for some optimism here about acceptance of climate change uh, and the kind of social conditions that would be necessary to allow us to teach about it in the schools, that we can be optimistic looking back at cases like the teaching of evolution where there was disagreement about the science, there was controversy, there was contention, and that over time science won out and the American public came along. And I think that when we're dealing with something as big and as abstract as climate change, it can be very easy to think that there's no way we're ever going to possibly wrap our minds around it. And I was also then thinking of, you know, what are the concrete things that we can do inside schools that are not just simply about educating young people about this very big, very abstract global phenomenon. I was thinking about some friends of ours who live in Australia, and to my knowledge, every Australian kid cannot go outside for recess without a hat on. And this is because of ozone depletion, which is, of course, a different thing from climate change. But because of ozone depletion, the sun's rays are more powerful, particularly in Australia, where there is less atmosphere there. And here's one response that the school's engaged in that makes it feel very real and very relevant for young people, right? Otherwise, a conversation about a hole in the ozone layer could be just as abstract as a conversation about climate change. And so that's not to say, okay, well, you know, to throw a hat on every young person and then, you know, teach climate change the way we teach evolution, that's not what I'm suggesting, but I am suggesting that these kinds of cases should both make us a little bit more optimistic about the potential of teaching about climate change in our schools and should get us thinking a little bit more imaginatively about what we can do uh, other than work within the curriculum. And that's, of course, what people like Oren Pismoni-Levy are suggesting. Well, Jack, I have bad news for you. Even as we speak, there are laws under consideration in Florida and Arizona that would ban schools from requiring kids to wear hats outside a recess. <laughs> uh, that's, I, I really thought that you were going to make a Crocodile Dundee joke there. I was, I was trying to figure out how you were going to connect that, but I, I took it in the wrong direction, I guess. Back to our guests. Next up is Katie Wirth. She's an investigative reporter and the author of a great new book called Miseducation, How Climate Change is Taught in America. A few years ago, she set out to see for herself what kids are learning about climate change. She read hundreds of textbooks and traveled the land talking to teachers and students. And what she saw for herself was exactly what we heard Oren describing earlier. For reasons political and personal, teachers overwhelmingly teach climate change is a debate. There haven't been too many surveys about how teachers educate students about climate change, but the ones that there have been have all found that teachers routinely teach climate change as a debate, like the cause of climate change as a debate. I think a lot of people don't understand that that controversy is political and not science. It's not a scientific controversy. It's really actually a big problem to teach it as a debate because it's like, imagine if you're asking kids to debate whether cigarettes cause cancer, 
at one point that was something that the public debated and it probably was taught as a debate in school, even though the, the evidence was overwhelming that of course cigarettes do cause cancer. Worth says that there are all sorts of reasons why teachers might present climate change as a debate. Think politics, for example, all those new state laws mandating that teachers include both sides of controversial issues. But the problem, as Worth sees it, is that teachers can end up conveying to kids that science itself is up for debate. I've talked to some academics who say that teaching it as a debate is actually even more problematic more kind of like hazardous to children than just giving them misinformation or no no information about it because it it gives them this really false impression that science even though you know we know that basically scientists are in 100% agreement at this point about the cause of climate change that it's humans that there's no potential no evidence for a natural cause um, that you know science itself can be debated just like seemingly everything else these days, our red state-blue state divide has a huge impact on what kids do or don't learn about climate change. One of the characters we meet in Miseducation is a boy named Iserman, whose family is from the Marshall Islands, where rising tides are an existential threat. His family is considering relocating to one of two U.S. states, Hawaii or Oklahoma. And as Worth explains, the information that kids get in those states about what's happening in places like the Marshall Islands is completely different. The student that I got to know wouldn't have learned anything in school about climate change unless he took an elective environmental science class or earth science, which isn't even offered in every school. And certainly, you know, not every student takes. But if his family moved to Hawaii, he would have learned about climate change first in third grade social studies, then middle school science, high school biology, U.S. history and government, world history and culture, Pacific Island studies, earth science, environmental science, and at least one math class. So, you know, a, a kid, you know, in Hawaii is going to have a hard time leaving school, graduating school without knowing something about climate change, whereas most kids at that time in Oklahoma were graduating without maybe, you know, I mean, I actually talked to some kids in a school in Enid, Oklahoma. Um, I talked to five kids there and four of them said I was the first adult to ever say the words climate change to them on school grounds. Katie says that partisan divide shaping what kids are taught about climate change has big implications for the future. I talked to a lot of teachers who really do want to foster kind of a sense of empowerment and action in their students. Um, we know that kids care a lot about this issue when they do find out about it. The statistics show that they are more concerned about it than their parents or grandparents' generation is and more willing to take action on it. But that said, a lot of kids are growing up in a community or in a family that is very ideological about it. One United Nations study looked at kind of belief systems around climate change and found that a quarter of teenagers rejected the idea of a climate crisis in America, which is less than their parents' or grandparents' generation, but it's more than is reasonable considering the science, right? And it's more than any other country in, in North America or in Western Europe. Kids are not all being taught to know about it, but when they are, then they care about it and want to take action because it's they have a lot at stake and it's very obvious to them that their future is at stake. 
The education gag orders that are now on the books in a growing number of red states have mostly been focused on race and gender. But don't be surprised if and when climate change education becomes the next target. That's because when kids learn about the what and why of climate change, it has a transformative effect, and not just on them. It was this small study done, I think, in North Carolina, where they gave kids pretty good education, middle school age kids, if I'm remembering right. And they would go home and they'd talk about it at the dinner table. And suddenly their parents would be more concerned about it than they were before. Another super interesting study was one done out of San Jose State by Eugene Cordero. And he followed this group of students. They were college kids. I think in their freshman year, they took a pretty intensive course on climate change. And then he followed them for years and kind of looked at what consumer decisions they made. So like what they ate and didn't eat, what what cars they bought and where they lived and found that for many years, they made pretty strikingly different consumer decisions than their peers did. And he extrapolated that if every student in America took that class, that the impact on carbon emissions would be as large as putting solar panels on every house in America. It's like a huge impact. I mentioned earlier that Katie is an investigative journalist. Well, perhaps my favorite moment in the book is when her investigative spirit takes her to a conference put on by the Heartland Institute, which is dedicated to offering up free market solutions to social and economic problems. Katie encounters Heartland co-founder Joseph Bast. You may recognize that name from our book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. And she had some questions for him. I asked him what he thought about a recent study that showed that nearly half of school teachers told students that climate change was natural or that it was debatable or just didn't give them any information at all about the cause. And he said, well, you know, I'm not surprised by that at all. It's because teachers are very smart. They're much smarter than the average reporter, <laughs> which was a very pointed criticism of me. Um, but then he went on to tell me that, that they just started sending out packets that included a book called Why Scientists Disagree About Global Warming and a DVD called Unstoppable Solar Cycles to science teachers around the country and probably some of your listeners received them. For an eye that knows quite a bit about climate change, it was pretty obviously misinformation. But for people who don't, it might have looked legit. And, you know, I talked to lots of teachers who said, well, I threw it away, but I know that there's this one teacher in my school that used it, that showed that DVD to their kids. So we know that it did have some impact. So what does quality climate change education actually look like? Katie says there are a number of key ingredients, but the the most important one of all may be hope. If a kid leaves school knowing that climate change is real, that it's us, that it's bad, and that there's hope that they're doing better than the, you know, a lot of adults in this country are. That last point that there's hope is really essential, especially with kids, because we can't just give them all doom and gloom. We have to let them know that there is hope, which there is. There is hope still. We can still make a big difference in this issue. And we need them to help out and roll up their sleeves and get to work on it. You know, if they leave their education having that sense that this is a big problem, but there's something to do about it, then they'll be in a good position to do so and to help us somehow evade the worst outcomes of this crisis. 
Well, speaking of hope, our final guest on this episode has some for us. Alyssa Levy teaches physics and computer science at the High School for Climate Justice in East Harlem. I can imagine what you're probably thinking. There's a high school for climate justice? Alyssa, take it away. Most of my students are either Black or Latinx and generally come from marginalized and underrepresented backgrounds. They hail from South Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn, and then our school is in East Harlem. So we have a large East Harlem population. And for years, our school has done conversations on race. It's been our goal to really help our students self-actualize and come to articulate their own needs in this world that, you know, has, has not historically served them. And then we were deciding to change our name about a year ago. We were thinking, you know, what, what should our new name be? And the idea of climate justice came up because we've always been focused on justice. And historically, we were life sciences secondary schools. We were also focused on science. And the question was, what is the most pressing thing that is facing our world today in in the realms of justice and science? I mean, it is obviously climate. And now we have a freshman seminar on climate and my physics class spends a half year on climate. So it's been great. When Alyssa and her colleagues surveyed students at the school, what they found wasn't all that different from what Katie Wirth's investigation turned up. A lot of students had never heard of global warming, even those whose lives have been profoundly affected by it. One fascinating thing, which I would never have known had we not become the high school for climate justice, a lot of our students, including students who'd never heard of global warming before this year, have realized that they are actually climate refugees. So in the freshman seminar on climate justice, my colleague was having them tell their climate story, right? What's a place where your family was affected by extreme weather events and the effects of rising temperatures and sea levels? And a lot of them realized the reason they moved away from Central America or from Bangladesh, et cetera, was droughts and floods, which were getting more extreme. And so you put the pieces together. They said, oh, my goodness, we're climate refugees. And they discovered that through this process. There was already a group of young climate activists at the school before the name change. Alyssa advises the Green Team, which was started a few years back by some then ninth graders who decided they wanted to do something about climate change. They've worked on projects like designing and disseminating Green Team tote bags, and their video about recycling won an international contest. So go Green Team! Alyssa says that spirit of wanting to do something is part of school culture now, whether students are activists or just learning about climate change. One is a solution space of advocacy and activism. So, for example, when we begin each green team meeting, the students all send a quick email to a representative explaining what they're working on and what they want that representative voting for, right? So just building advocacy and activism into the daily life of what you do. And the second piece of actions is the more personal actions. And this is a constant source of debate because the actual effect on climate change of me recycling a bottle is it's actually pretty small, but it shifts a mindset. And it creates a conversation. And so even just talking about how a T-shirt, 2,700 liters of water, I think, to, to produce, you know, shortening my showers for a year doesn't even come close to buying one $5 shirt. 
A year into their rebranding as the high school for climate justice, Alyssa says she's thrilled at how teachers and students have come together at the school and connected to the larger community. It's been great, and it's been a full school effort. And I think one of the biggest things, um, and working with our assistant principal, we've realized from the beginning is we cannot do it alone. So all the research I did into climate curricula and climate partnerships and external organizations, everything is a partnership. And the the list of organizations we're working with or building things with is very long (laughs) right now. And some things pan out and some things don't pan out. Um, But there are so many organizations that want to work with adolescents and so many adolescents sitting in high schools wanting to be connected to the world. And so that's that's what we have found is that the more research you do, the more places you get connected with, you email people, they they reply because they want to partner with the school. And that's really how the students are going to learn what's going on out there. Back to Oren Pismoni-Levy, who kicked off this episode for us. Well, he's been teaching a new class focused entirely on climate change. It's called Environmental and Sustainability Education, Comparative and International Perspectives. He is a professor, after all. And Oren says that it's going great. I don't want to sound uh, arrogant, but it was a big success because students were able to learn about climate change beyond the headlines in, in the newspaper. We brought a scientist and we read perspectives from indigenous communities and we read about what social science has to offer on climate debates. And we brought people from the federal government and we brought people from the local government and from international organizations really to see how different subsectors in education are looking at this topic. It was a phenomenal experience. And out of that class, I didn't plan it, but out of that class came this uh, movement of uh, students at Teachers College who are pushing the administration to take action around this. So for me, that was one of the um, biggest successes so far. A huge thanks to our special guests for this episode, Oren Pismoni-Levy, Katie Wirth, and Alyssa Levy. If you want to know more about their work, I recommend perusing the reading list that we put together for our Patreon supporters. It includes a wealth of information on climate change research, how to teach about climate change, and much, much more. If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast to become a supporter. And Jack and I will be right back. So, Jack, when I was just getting started on working on this episode, one of our listeners named Eric Reinbergs sent a paper that he authored called Flooding Schools, School Mental Health Providers in the Climate Crisis. And it was a reminder to me of, you know, how many different ways there are to look at this issue. But it's also, you know, kind of one that resonates with me personally, because as some of our listeners know, I live on the ocean. I live in America's oldest seaport. That would be Gloucester, Massachusetts. And I can tell you that in the 15 plus years that we've lived here, you can just watch the tides getting higher and higher. And our high school is built very close to the ocean. There was a a picture that famously circulated across the internet a couple years ago when we had a big nor'easter of cars floating in the parking lot. 
And you can see that that's the future here, you know, that there are these sort of sad sandbags that they put along the highway now as though, you know, those are going to hold back the forces of nature. But I just, I feel the reminder of this every time I go outside on a day where we're having an astronomically high tide and, you know, people, that question that Oren was referring to, those administrators asking, well, when do you think we're going to see the impact of climate <laughs> change? And when do you think you're, we're going to see it on our schools? You know, it's here. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that that makes me think of is, you know, how important it is, particularly for younger students to experience things firsthand. I mean, it's important for all of us, right? That um, adults, for instance, who are likely to have, you know, unfavorable opinions of particular groups and subgroups in the United States, when they realize like, oh, those people are in my family, right? They tend to come along. Uh, they, they realize through their personal direct experience, this person's not a threat. Or in the case of what you're describing, like, oh, this abstract environmental disaster is a threat. Um, so personal experience matters tremendously. And, and I would say that I think we have some evidence that it matters even more with young students. And one of the ways that we've approached that in education is to try to help young students understand things in the context of their immediate environment. So like thinking about the social studies curriculum is one instructive way to think through how we do this. Now, of course, what you're pointing out is that these immediate environmental impacts that are being felt are being felt disproportionately. So we can't just say, well, hey, every, every kindergarten in America should take a walk around and see what's going to be underwater. There are places that simply won't be. And so one thing that I'm thinking about is, is the power of connecting schools with each other, right? Imagine how powerful it could be for young people in, let's say, Topeka, Kansas, to zoom in with young people living in Gloucester, Massachusetts, um, on a day when there are cars floating around in the parking lot, right? To learn about what the heck is going on there, as well as vice versa, when a tornado comes ripping through Kansas at, you know, at a time of year when tornadoes are not expected because of increasing climate instability or a day when there's a snowstorm. So I think there are some interesting things that we can do to try to think about this, as well as thinking at higher grade levels about trying to help young people see that we are actually experiencing similar things uh, in different places. So while on the one hand, I think it's important to help young people see phenomena that they wouldn't be exposed to in their own communities, I think being able to see, for instance, like, wow, we're having um, fiercer storms here on the Florida coast, and so are people in Southeast Asia, um, that can help them develop a sort of new level of understanding about this global phenomenon. And of course, all of this squares with what we know about the science of learning, right? This is not new to educators about how to kind of spiral the curriculum and continue returning back to particular themes in more complex ways with different kinds of goals um, so that by the time that young people are graduating from high school or maybe graduating from college, if we began to think through, you know, PK through 16 education, that they would have, you know, a set of understandings that really gave them both a, a felt sense of climate change and 
a, a real sense of the abstract nature of the problem that, that felt less abstract and more real to them. Well, when the floating car challenge comes to TikTok, we'll know who to blame. Yeah. <laughs> we'll also know who to turn to. Yeah. So Jennifer, speaking of cars, uh, I thought maybe I would do the pitch that we have for listeners, which is that if they want to donate their cars to the show, um, that that's one way to help support what we're doing. They can just call 1-800-HAVE-YOU. Um, I mean, you can dial herd as well, but those numbers are in it. It's not going to get you anywhere, but just 1-800-HAVE-YOU. And then you, if your car, even if it's been flooded, um, we'll take it. And then we'll, I think we'll pick it up too. You're smiling, Jennifer. What you're... You just, you never tire of this exercise. I think you sit around when you're supposed to be attending faculty meetings or advising no, This is what I do people. during faculty meetings is I come I, up with ways to try to undermine your capitalistic tendencies. Well, you have failed again, sir, because <laughs> we are headed to the paywall right now. As our regular <laughs> listeners know, we rely on your support to keep the show going and pay our excellent producer. He's the reason the show always sounds so good, at least most of it. <laughs> and today we are going to be talking about a subject that's near and dear to Jack's heart, and that is the opt-out movement. Whatever happened to it? If this interests you, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. You'll see a list of all the cool extras you can get just by throwing a few dollars our way each month. We do a custom reading list and you get to come with us into an area we call the weeds where today you're going to learn all about the opt-out movement. And if you want to keep your flooded car and uh, you are more interested in, um, you know, democratic communities than, uh, than the economy, then, you know, there are lots of ways to support the show. We appreciate you listening. And if you share your listening experience with others, that helps grow this community. We've got a Twitter handle, at HaveYouHeardPod. We love hearing from you, and we love seeing when you're tagging your friends and colleagues and suggesting that they listen to particular episodes. We've got a book. Haven't mentioned that in a while. Uh, Wolf at the Schoolhouse Store. It's in libraries. If your library doesn't have it, make a demand. Do engage in a, in, a, in a collective action and insist that your library purchase that book for all of you. I think that's all I've got, Jennifer. So, Jack, FYI, the fan mail that has been rolling in is stacked at roughly three to one against you because of precisely this. <laughs> well, I think there's a sampling bias there, Jennifer, since that is the mail that has been sent to you. I will send you copies of all of the letters that I get. Dear Comrade Schneider, they they begin. Um, so, you know, get get ready. I'm gonna I'm gonna fax those over to you right now. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Comrade Schneider. This is Have You Heard.